Welcome to the Democracy Group. I'm Farai Chidea, host of Our Body Politic, and this is my best of 2021 episode. If you want to hear more from Our Body Politic, head over to ourbodypolitic.com or find us everywhere you listen to podcasts. Now, let's get to the episode. Thanks for listening and sharing our body politic. As you know, we're new and creating the show with lots of input from listeners like you. So I want to ask you a small favor. After you listen today, please head over to Apple Podcasts on your phone, tablet, laptop, or anywhere you listen and leave us a review. We read those because your ideas matter to us. Thanks so much. This is Our Body Politic. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. On Wednesday, the day Congress was supposed to certify the Electoral College victory for President-elect Joe Biden, I decided to go interview protesters near the White House. Thousands of people had come from around the country for a series of rallies to support President Trump's unfounded claims that he had won the election. Jay came from Massachusetts. He's Black, and he's 26 years old. I just feel from my personal perspective that um, the media has kind of portrayed him to be this disgusting, like, misogynistic, racist bigot, you know, and I just don't see it, you know what I mean? I don't like to be taken advantage of in that way, and that's why I came out to support him, just from that simple fact alone. I saw peaceful protesters, but later that afternoon, white nationalists and other Trump supporters invaded the Capitol buildings, and a woman was shot dead. The nation was left shaken, but the vote was eventually certified in the wee hours of the morning on Thursday. Before that, the country had been riveted by the Senate runoff elections in Georgia, where two Democrats won, tipping the balance of power in Washington. We'll start with Aaron Haynes, our political contributor whose invaluable insights have helped shape our body politic. And I'm thrilled to introduce you to Tiffany Jeffers, our new legal analyst. She's an associate professor at Georgetown Law in Washington, D.C. She'll come in regularly to talk all things legal and constitutional with me. Welcome, Tiffany. Hi, Farai. Hi, Erin. Hi, Farai. So it is a majestic moment that we get to do this as, you know, a trifecta. And I'm so thrilled that you're with us, Tiffany. Recently, you know, the president asked the Georgia Secretary of State to find him 11,000 more votes. What is the law behind a president asking a secretary of state to find votes? So there's a federal statute and state law in Georgia that Donald Trump has violated uh, with this phone call. You can't manipulate American elections. That's a federal crime solicitation of Georgia elect, Georgian elected officials is, is a crime in that particular state. And so proving that the act of the ask occurred, the solicitation, uh, is broken down into two different components. You need to prove that the action, the solicitation itself existed, and, but, but you also have to prove the intent and knowledge behind it. And this is under the state statute. And that's the difficulty in any dealings with Donald Trump, because the way he uses words is clever. So he he's making a case for relying on his belief. And if he if it's proven that he's relied on this belief, regardless of whether that belief is substantiated or not, then the state can is failing to prove intent. And, and so that's the difficulty in a prosecution Trump for this particular recording. It's so hard to legally nail him down because he talks in circular (laughs) phonics. And a lot of, I don't know, maybes, uh, whatever I thought, you know, those types of words don't pin someone down, don't solidify, don't tie his actions uh, and don't ground him in any illegality. And that's what is going to make this case difficult, proving intent and knowledge. Yeah, Because this is front of mind at the moment, I want to go over the responses so far to what we can only call a domestic terrorist attack on the Capitol by Trump supporters. It wasn't a rally. It was 
coordinated. And Representative Cori Bush tweeted that her first resolution in Congress would be to call for the expulsion of Republican Congress members who incited the attack. Um, Aaron, is that even possible? And is it appropriate for her to be asking that? Well, I think that, that, you know, in the wake of the insurrection that we saw, it is appropriate to talk about how we got here and who uh, was responsible or who uh, encouraged uh, what we saw. And so, uh, you know, I think that part of that is, uh, you know, for the members of Congress who frankly were among the most directly impacted by an attempted breach of our democracy, you know, for, for her to be asking those questions, uh, I think is certainly what uh, the people who elected her uh, to that office uh, would probably be expecting uh, of her in this moment. You know, for folks who are concerned about the rhetoric and the atmosphere that uh, has been fueled by uh, the outgoing president and what that did to contribute to the events of January 6th, uh, but also, you know, those supporters uh, of the president uh, in Congress who who may have also uh, abetted uh, this behavior and and this insurrection, uh, I think these are questions that we should all be asking. Tiffany, let's widen the frame a little bit. When you look at the incredible events of the past week and all of the different legal and ethical questions they raise about the state of American democracy, how does the long shadow of race and, frankly, white supremacy play into how the law is constructed to deal with these challenging moments? This is a really important question for I. I think it's important to discuss the lens through which the law has been framed because our system, our democratic system, is built on white supremacy and property ownership. And often when we talk about the law, we don't bring that up. Without that framework, we're not providing context for how the law is meant to function. So when uh, when you think about people not being convicted of crimes, quote unquote, white collar, or not being penalized for crimes that seemingly don't hurt anyone, it's because we're protecting whiteness and we're protecting property as is institutionalized in our very foundation in the law. In addition to how the law was framed, we have to think about the lens of who is enacting the law. What's the purview? What's what's the ex- life experience of the people who are executing the laws as they stand? If that lens is coming only through whiteness, then you're thinking about Black Lives Matter protesters that are damaging property based on a history of systematic oppression and murder, but you're only seeing them, the law is only seeing them through the lens of dangerous, violent property destroyers versus the insurgents that scourged the Capitol building. They're seen as protesters who are protecting whiteness. They're seen as protesters who are protecting voting rights, quote unquote. But remember, what is the foundation of voting rights, white male property owners. So when you don't frame the law properly and when you don't uh, give meaning and context to the lens through which the law is being implemented, you're doing an injustice and the law will never be implemented fairly. You'll never see justice uh, being effectuated because you're not being honest. You're not being true. You've got these Senate elections and the Democrats took the day Yeah, I mean, well, it's huge. You know, I think that this is obviously a testament to the many Black women organizers across the state who mobilized and galvanized and energized uh, Black voters, particularly in the midst of raging, you know, coronavirus and voter suppression across the state, and really expanded the electorate to include people who had not felt seen or heard previously in uh, our democracy. Wednesday afternoon, I went into downtown Washington, D.C. to talk to people congregating there. Now, this was a very peaceful protest. You know, when I talk about domestic terrorism, which, you know, I will claim that uh, NPR is using insurrection, you're using insurrection. I think that there's many different aspects, but I went to a peaceful protest of uh, supporters of the president closer to the White House. This was before anyone stormed the Capitol. And um, I spoke with several people and also Tara from Detroit. Let's hear a little from her. I don't travel. I don't take vacations. I don't do anything, but I had to come out for this because we have to fight for our freedom. And we have to really, really get rid of Biden. Orange Madden is not bad. 
He's good. He's good for us. He's good for America. Tara appeared to be white and was just, you know, really generous with her time. But she is not going to get on a page, I doubt, with a Biden presidency. And I don't know that many people I spoke to, no matter how nice they were, would. What does that mean for the incoming Biden-Harris administration, that there are people who will likely continue to stand up strongly for the president, whether it's peacefully or violently? Well, you know, Farai, uh, Joe Biden is somebody who ran for president saying that that he was in a battle for the soul of America and that he wanted to unite the country and that he wanted to be a president for everybody, including the people who did not vote for him. You know, I think that uh, both people like Tara and, and also uh People like the insurgents that you saw at the Capitol do not seem to be particularly interested in uniting. Uh, and they certainly aren't interested in recognizing um, Joe Biden as as the next president of the United States. But I really think that the bigger question here is what this means for our democracy, not just what it means for the incoming Biden and Harris administration. And, and one of our greatest strengths as a nation has been the willingness of our democratic society to recognize that fundamental requirement to accept the results of elections, right? Yeah. There's a critical mass of, of Americans who believe, as the president believes, that the election was rigged, uh, that are reluctant or refusing to accept uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as as president and vice president, that does not bode well uh, for uh, either their tenure uh, or for the future of our uh, fragile democracy. The way I'd like to wrap this up is that, you know, first Aaron and then Tiffany, uh, if if what lies ahead is a continuing racial reckoning within a larger political reckoning, um, what might we be looking for as we look at how the U.S. handles this moment? I think that certainly uh, Joe Biden has said that um, systemic racism uh, is one of the four crises that he believes that he and Kamala Harris will confront when they take office. And uh, certainly uh, one of the main places that Black voters and and, and civil rights uh, advocates are expecting them to confront that will be through a Justice Department. Looking ahead, we should be looking uh, primarily to protecting voting rights across this nation, um, ensuring that all citizens have the right to vote in unobstructed ways in every single election uh, is, is going to be the only way we can continue to make progress. Lots of food for thought. Um, thank you so much, Tiffany. Thanks, Farai. And thank you, Erin. Thank you. See you next time. Erin Haynes is editor-at-large at the 19th, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom reporting at the intersection of gender, politics, and policy. And Tiffany Jeffers is associate professor of law and legal practice at Georgetown Law. So great having you on. Thanks. Coming up next... Less than 2% of all money worldwide is managed by women or people of color. You're listening to Our Body Politics. If you like the conversations about race, politics, and society that we have on our show, I'd like to recommend A Word with Jason Johnson. On this podcast from Slate, you'll listen to discussions of race that shine a light on the facts, the history, and the reality of how race plays out in our politics. Plus, what are some possible paths forward? Jason Johnson is a veteran political commentator who brings his wit to fascinating conversations with leaders, journalists, and changemakers. Find A Word with Jason Johnson wherever you find your podcast. Natalie Molina Nino is a one-woman force for business innovation and justice. She's the daughter of South American immigrants, and she rose in the tech industry, then took on behind-the-scenes roles in politics. She's a technology expert and coder by training and has worked on everything from socially responsible investing to higher education. And now she's got a big idea for making finance more inclusive. Natalie, it's great to have you on. It's amazing to be here. Why don't you just set the stage for us? And I want to know a little bit more about how you got into both business and politics. What was it that attracted you, maybe even as a child, to understanding these systems? 
Well, the political awakening is definitely most recent. Um, I come from a family of immigrants. They moved here. Uh, my parents moved here um, from Colombia and Ecuador, respectively, worked in the sweatshops of Los Angeles. Um, and then my father ended up starting his own factory. Uh, my mom, in order to make sure that my dad's entrepreneurial adventures, um, which as all entrepreneurs and especially, you know, yeah, I would say immigrant entrepreneurs without safety nets. Um, it's a risky proposition. And so my mother ended up getting a union job um, actually at a supermarket in Los Angeles so that we could have health insurance, so that we could have, you know, reliable safety nets. Um, and it was that experience that led me to understand what it was to be an entrepreneur and frankly, not know anything else. And when I was 20, I ended up starting my first dot com. So why did you pivot out of the technology industry? If, if I understand correctly, you're now off to other adventures, which you may or may not be able to talk about yet, but you've got, you've got pots on all over the oven, um, pots all over the stovetop, but um, pivoting in new directions. In my mind, I was taking a sabbatical. Everyone expected me to go, go away for a year and come back, but in the back of my mind, I knew I wasn't coming back. So I f- expected to take a couple years off. I went to Columbia. Um, I both went back to school, but then I also started the Center for Women Entrepreneurs um, within Barnard. So my first pivot was just that. It was yeah. let me leave tech and focus on paying it forward and hoping that I can give a leg up to the next generation and make things hopefully a little bit easier for them than it was for me. And then while I was in New York and while I was in that world, it became really clear to me that all while education is important and all the education in the world um, will make a difference in the lives of many, the fact is, if we're really honest about what's at the root of the issue and what's holding women, especially women of color back, it's money. And so after a few years of that, I became an investor and that was about in 2016. And that's where I am now. I'm a full-time investor and I'm constantly thinking of ways to give women, especially women of color and communities of color, an unfair advantage. Yeah. Tell me why you you deliberately chose the word unfair advantage. You know, we lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg last year. And I would say, when I say unfair advantage, I'm referring to the exact same logic that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was using when she was asked, you know, when will enough women chief justices be enough? And she said nine, mm-hmm. right? We've had hundreds of years of all male chief justices, it's fine for there to be an all-female you know, group of, of justices. And I'm feeling the same way, right? We have systemically and we continue, right? People are obsessed uh, with the history of unfairness and injustice from a financial standpoint in this country. Um, they have to understand, right? And even the ones that don't pay attention, you have to understand that if you think redlining was unfair, How do you feel about over $500 billion being released to quote unquote small businesses in the last year and 90% of that money not going to people of color, right? Mm -hmm. So it's redlining is happening right now. It's not a historical thing. I have written about this and um, in my neighborhood in Crown Heights, I actually ended up lending money, which I got back to a black small business owner because she had no way to get these loans. So it became very personal for me. And if she'd never paid me back, it still would have been fine, but not fine for me, but not fine for the system. Not okay. Not okay. Not okay. Especially when you think about the fact that Women are starting more businesses than men in this country at about twice the rate. And of those, 8.9 out of 10 of them are women of color. So really, there were over $500 billion deployed into small businesses. And if you don't care at all of the, about the community and all you care about is just the math, then you should have focused on directing the majority of that money towards women of color-owned businesses. And that's the opposite of what happened. Um, and so the amount of correction that will have to happen, right? The same way that someone might say giving a woman a pre- you know preference in becoming a chief justice might feel unfair. Um, that is a correction that is well overdue. And the kind of financial platforms and strategies and policies that I want to see put in place that are needed in order to correct hundreds of years of injustice, some people might perceive as unfair. 
as well, but it's not even close to what's needed in order to truly level the playing field. We have so much work to do. It's not going to be done in my lifetime or even in anybody who's currently alive's lifetime. Where is the point, the inflection point that you are most dedicated to right now? Because you're playing in very different lanes, politics, investing, entrepreneurship. Um, if you had to, if you had to pick the the inflection point that you find most useful um, and most high impact, what would it be? It's what my next company is going to be. And honestly, it's where I want to focus the rest of my life. And that is, we worry, and, and we rightfully should worry about who is in elected office. And we worry about heads of state. And we worry about um, things that make headlines, right? Like the fact that very few women get venture capital, right? And if we look at women of color, women of color get less than 1% of all venture capital. There is no freaking way that the single most entrepreneurial group and demographic in this country has less than 1% of the good ideas, right? So it makes absolutely Mm -hmm. no mathematical sense. But if we took a more of a macro perspective and we look at all money worldwide, less than 2% of all money worldwide is managed by women or people of color, right? People of color who represent over 70% of the global population have a say on how less than 1%, excuse me, less than 2% of all money is distributed in the world. And so I want to step back from the the details and I want to think macro level. Mm. If I look at someone like Larry Fink at the helm of BlackRock, managing over $7 trillion, this is not someone who was elected. And this is arguably one of the most powerful people in the world. And I think about, for example, in the United States, if just African-Americans and Latinos channeled their economic power, it would be a $3.9 trillion economy. It would be the fourth largest economy in the world if all we did is shop from each other, loan to each other for either way you did to that small business, Mm -hmm. and actually, you know, transact with each other. We could... We could harness uh, the fourth largest economy in the world. And so that's my focus. My focus is how do we build the Black, Indigenous, people of color-owned version of BlackRock? Mm. How do we make sure that in addition to civil rights and voting rights and all of the other things that are really important, that we also focus on ownership? We need to own the hospitals. We need to own the insurance companies. We need to own the banks. Our communities need to be in positions of ownership. And we need something like a competitor to a BlackRock that is majority people of color owned. Well, I can't tell you how excited I am to hear that that's your next venture. And I hope you'll come back once it launches to talk to us. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you. Anytime. Natalie Molina Nino is president of O-Cubed, a private investment company. The name stands for Outcomes Over Optics. Coming up later this hour... This public declaration, um, whether it's diversifying one's workforce or invested in Black-owned businesses, it really influences and forces companies to become deliberate, thoughtful, and strategic uh, in how they're ramping up those diversity numbers. Each week, we bring you the latest news on the pandemic and how people of color are fighting for survival. More than 130,000 people are hospitalized with COVID, and the number keeps rising. December and January and February are going to be rough times. I actually believe they're going to be the most difficult time in the public health history of this nation. That was CDC Director Robert Redfield during a live stream presentation hosted by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation last month. Meanwhile, there's a new variant of the virus that spreads more easily from person to person. It doesn't seem to be making people sicker, but experts worry it could make our infection rate much worse. The vaccines Americans started getting last month should work on the new variant. And in the coming weeks, we'll talk about the new administration's plans to ramp up vaccinations with the women of color in charge of it across the country. I also want to take stock of the economic impacts of the pandemic. According to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, one in five Latino adults said their households sometimes or often did not have enough food to eat. That number was nearly one in four for Black adults. 
25 million people are unemployed or live with someone who lost their job. Most of the jobs lost have been low wage and people of color have suffered the worst unemployment. One in five renters are not caught up on rent during the pandemic. Half of Black and Latino adults say they have trouble covering household expenses. After months of gridlock, Congress finally passed a new stimulus bill in late December. It provides enhanced unemployment benefits, $600 stimulus checks for most Americans, and money for small businesses. It also extends the federal moratorium on evictions. But safety nets have holes. Not everyone is protected under the eviction moratorium, and some landlords and housing court judges still allow evictions despite the ban. Louisiana man Frizzell Shepard told WAFB9 News that his family has been living in a motel since he lost his job as a cook and they were evicted. I told my, uh, my landlord that was my situation, and so she's still processed to fill, uh, do the eviction. I just need a job. I just need a job. The current eviction ban expires at the end of January. Lastly, we've talked on the show about how people of color are more likely to get sick from COVID because more do essential work and also don't have access to preventative measures. But there are disparities in treatment, too. Research has shown that African-Americans are systematically undertreated for pain, for example, and doctors have been less likely to refer Black patients for coronavirus testing and treatment. Dr. Susan Moore recorded a Facebook video from her hospital bed in Indiana, where she said she received subpar treatment for COVID-19 infection because she was Black, even despite the fact that she was a physician herself. This is how Black people get killed. When you send them home and they don't know how to fight for themselves. Dr. Moore died on December 20th. In next week's update, we're going to get into the long-term health effects of COVID on our bodies and on our minds. Now it's time for Show Me the Money, our regular business segment with Our Body Politic contributor and business reporter, Ruth Umo. Welcome, Ruth. Happy to be back. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. So we've talked about these pledges that corporations made for racial equity, particularly after George Floyd was killed. And, you know, you talked about the money put on the table. Can you give us an update on that and also just what the pledges are adding up to? We've seen over the last year uh, countless companies from those in the tech sector to those in the financial services sector pledge and commit multi-billion dollar packages toward addressing racial inequity. Um, And I believe the number has now totaled more than $35 billion in just the last six months of 2020. Some companies like SoftBank, for instance, are creating funds to invest in Black-owned businesses and Black-led banks and financial institutions institutions that service Black communities. What's interesting is that these pledges are far, far more comprehensive than any commitment we've seen from corporate America in the last decade. But we're seeing them create far more tangible strategies this time around that address a host of issues that we haven't seen before, such as racial disparities in healthcare, uh, job training, career reskilling and upskilling for individuals in in underserved areas. Um, They're looking at operating support and investments for affordable housing and neighborhood revitalization. Mm -hmm. And the list goes on. We simply weren't seeing this in years past. um, And so it's certainly a sight to see going forward. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I'm curious about is who is tracking these? Is Is there any kind of like common tracking mechanism or is it up to individual reporters to keep track of whether these efforts continue? I think it's really up to individual reporters or the media watchdog um, to really, you know, stay abreast of whether companies are enacting these pledges and these promises. But I think that accountability is really key. And the Black Lives Matter resurgence last summer force corporations to make these promises publicly and also to publicly earmark where those dollars are going exactly. 
it will be very, very difficult for them to retreat from such public statements. Uh, Some of them publicize concrete diversity goals. And so it's much easier for the public, whether that's their employees, uh, consumers, or even lawmakers to say, well, this is what you said you were going to do in 2020. What metrics do you Mm -hmm. have to show for it? And as we saw with Adidas, when it launched a campaign in support of Black Lives Matter, employees are increasingly speaking out to highlight the hypocrisy between what the company is doing internally and what it's promulgating externally. You've also studied another approach where corporations index how they contribute based on what they earn or what cash they have on hand. Tell us about Yelp and Netflix. Yes. So Yelp recently announced that it will deposit $10 million into financial institutions that support Black and underserved communities in the United States. That money is going to be divided among three financial institutions that are Black-led and Black-serving, and it'll really support their ability to launch and promote things like affordable housing initiatives, offer Black small business owners loans. But as you noted, Yelp isn't an anomaly. Netflix is the one that really kicked this off uh, in mid-2020. They promised to shift 2% of their cash pile representing around $100 million into financial institutions and organizations that service Black communities. Robert F. Smith, the private equity billionaire, has also pushed for uh, more large corporations and big banks to do the same. And so we're seeing some Mm -hmm. momentum there. Let's go to the workforce question. What are we seeing there? Yeah, so as it pertains to the workforce, I mean, diversifying one's workforce is just the start. But one thing that I would caution that companies do is to first define what they mean by diversity. Um, Too often we see companies say, okay, you know, we really want to promote diversity and inclusion internally. And by and large, it benefits heterosexual, cisgender, white women. So they have to create specific targets by gender, by race and ethnicity, and then also splice these numbers by ranking. Because again, you often see an influx of diverse entry-level hires in order to juice those numbers up quickly. But you don't see much diversity at the top of an organization. And and that's where real change takes place. All right, Ruth, thanks so much. Thank you. Ruth Umo is the new editor-in-chief of The Filament, a publication geared towards diversity and inclusion professionals in tech. Coming up next... The thing that I really like is that it's all becoming more public. And I think the more these conversations become public, I think that it gives journalists confidence to keep talking and to advocate for themselves and for each other. And I think some of the solutions require collective organizing and it requires journalists, not just journalists of color, it requires all journalists to come together and advocate collectively for structural reforms in this industry. Listening to Our Body Politic. I've been a journalist for slightly more than three decades, scary to admit, and I've had the most amazing adventures. I've been to 49 U.S. states and 30 countries and been underpaid and faced harassment of several types. I built this show with a team of women of color. We treat each other with respect and we get to do our best work. A lot of the time, what sisters in journalism share stays very hush for obvious reasons. But Carla Murphy has been working on describing the experiences of journalists of color in this complicated industry and bringing that wisdom into the open. Murphy is a former journalist whose work has appeared in The New York Times, The Nation, and The Daily Beast. She now devotes her time to journalism reform and published Leavers, a survey of about 100 journalists of color who left their careers in media about what led them to their breaking point. Welcome, Carla. Hey, Farai. It's nice to be here. I have really been so impressed with your consistent attention to media in so many different ways. 
And before we really dig into the big picture, tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, kind of what your journey has taken you through and and what's inspiring to you, including your own work. Sure. Thanks. Um, So I think the most important thing for me about my bio is probably what doesn't appear there. So I'm an immigrant. I'm from Barbados in the Caribbean. I came to the United States when I was nine. I live in New York City now, grew up here. In terms of journalism, I came very late to journalism. I started journalism in my late 20s. I've spent most of my career, I would say, in progressive spaces, writing for community papers, but I was always very focused on low-income communities covering communities of color and covering news for them, not just about them. So you said recently that you couldn't imagine, even a few months ago, there being a real newsroom revolt around unequal pay and mistreatment of journalists of color. So what has changed? Because a lot is going on. And what are we seeing today? I would say the most important thing that's changed is the, the social movements and how the various social movements have affected how journalists see themselves as workers. Um, And when I say the various social movements, I mean Me Too, I mean Black Lives Matter, I mean Occupy Wall Street. All of those together, I think, are the perfect storm. I think that a lot of what's happening and why there is a reckoning in journalism comes from what communities outside of us are doing. You know, it's it, what you're saying reminds me of a former student of mine, because um, I taught journalism for four years, who is a reporter today. And she came to the U.S. as an undocumented immigrant from Latin America uh, when she was quite young. And she talks about how her family has become more financially secure over time and gotten uh, immigration papers, et cetera, but that so many of her colleagues don't even pay their own rent. Their families are subsidizing their entire life as journalists. The money side of journalism is pretty bad for the most part, except for uh, some people at the very highest echelons. And how does that affect race and gender in media? So let me start by saying this. I am a visiting fellow at Boston College, and I'm so grateful to be there. I'm teaching a class about class in journalism, in the coverage, but also within the industry. But one of the reasons I'm teaching that class is because I remember when I first started in journalism, and I was at a well-known publication in New York City, a magazine, and I remember working with one of the interns at that time who had come in. And during the course of this conversation, I realized that my fellow intern, her father, was like a huge Hollywood producer. And it's something that I found that journalism does not discuss openly. A lot of the steps that I needed to take in journalism, you need to be subsidized by either your family or you need to be subsidized by your spouse. These internships were often definitely during my time, they were unpaid. And even if they were paid, they were poorly paid. You know, and and this leads me on to a Latinx food critic at the LA Times shared her story about what she describes as a Grand Canyon-sized you know, gap between herself and her white male counterpart for the same work. So have you been tracking all this? And what do you make about what it says about journalism? The thing that I really like is that it's all becoming more public. And I think the more these conversations become public, I think that it gives journalists confidence to keep talking and to advocate for themselves and for each other. And I think some of the solutions require collective organizing, and it requires journalists, not just journalists of color, it requires all journalists to come together and advocate collectively for structural reforms in this industry. To get to that change and to immediately help journalists of color, you have to find community. You have to find people who see you and who believe in your work and the the voice and the perspective that you bring to journalism. And I think that individual journalists of color need to find the place where they feel cared for. Because one of the things I found in my survey, one of the findings was um, definitely about burnout, stress, mental health. We can't hope to help them 
if our own mental health and stress, if we're breaking down ourselves. So that's the first thing. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the second thing after that is getting organized. Um, Find people who have a similar vision of you for journalism, who have the same um, interest in organizing for a living wage and work towards that together. What really comes to mind for me as you're talking about what journalists can do is also just this larger question of why does this even matter? You and I know why it matters, but for someone who was like, I don't care who reports my news or the best people will rise to the top, how do you even explain to people who may not have any buy-in to these questions why it matters? You know what? I've found when I'm on the street talking to people, they get why it matters that I'm supposed to be in the newsroom. Actually, they're the ones who are telling me why I need to be in the newsroom um, because they have been so jaded. They get why it's very important to have people who look like them in the newsroom telling the news and informing the public. Perfect place to end, Carla. Thank you so much. Thanks, Farai. I enjoyed it. Carla Murphy's survey is called Leavers. You can find a link to it on her Twitter profile, at Carla Murphy. Every week, I ask listeners to participate in the show by calling into our speak line. Last month, we asked you, how are you coping with the pandemic? Here's what some of our listeners called in to share, especially after I said ice cream was my pandemic love affair. This is Brittany Frankie. I am um, 32 years old from Placerville, California, and I do love ice cream as well. Running is a wonderful outlet. You can just get out in nature, just get your body moving. Hi, I'm Nate from Los Angeles, and I have been coping with the pandemic through music. Since March, I have purchased a banjo an accordion, a second harmonica, and I've just been playing piano, guitar, and everything else under the sun, and it is very therapeutic. Thanks to all the listeners who called in. I'm now adding a yoga coach and four-mile daily walks to balance out all that ice cream. And in any case this month, we're asking you a new question. We're inviting you to put yourselves in the White House. We'd like to know, if this was your first day in office, what would be your top priority and why? I think the first thing I'd do is put a blanket under the desk in the Oval Office for when I needed a nap because I know I would be working 24-7. If you'd like to leave us a message, call 929-353-7006. That's 929-353-7006 to leave us a voicemail. Or go to ourbodypolitik.show, yes, dot show, and scroll down to find a Google form to respond in writing. We're going to bring back our brilliant futurist contributors to talk about another topic you weighed in on as part of the Speak platform. Sharon Chang is the founder and creative director of the Guild of Future Architects. Hey, Sharon. Hi, Farai. And Kamal Sinclair is the executive director. Welcome back, Kamal. Hello, Farai. Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year. And we have plans for the present and the future. And so we asked our listeners last month as the holidays approached the question that you had given us, how would your day be different if you spent as much time on community, family, creativity, and wellness as you do on working? Why is this question important? I I want both of you to answer. Sharon, why don't you start? This question is important to me because of the way I look at how we define work. We look at work as this thing as a matter of survival. And and we get into the framing of, okay, if you're lucky enough to find a job that also is your passion, good for you. But most people just have to do the job and have a hobby. And then in their spare time, go take care of all these other things that are actually essentially really important to one's well-being mm, and to community, yeah. right, to the health of our entire world. So until the day we can really start to think about and really question, how do we even come to this definition of work and, and start to integrate the idea of work and life 
in a way that we haven't been able to do since the industrial age. And, and I find this question fascinating because it allows us the opportunity to really start to fundamentally question why we even follow this kind of mental model. Yeah. Kamal, what about you? What is this calling up for you? Over the holidays, I got a chance to synthesize through just all these futurist writers rooms that we had run with people. And two themes came up pretty regularly. Uh, One was, do we really believe in the unique fingerprint of every person on this planet? Do we really believe that each person has something unique to contribute that only they can contribute? And if that is true, why are we not designing our work and life systems to invest in that particular person so that they can unleash that potential for the betterment of everybody? And I think about, you know, this whole idea around how we're going to spend our time in the future is very much tied to the shift from industrial age systems that are antiquated now, especially with the systems coming on board um, that are supposed to supply you know, an abundance of time um, because of the future technologies like artificial intelligence. If that's true, then what do we do? We can stop investing in human beings just as kind of cogs in the wheel of production to investing in people for unlocking their human potential. And I think that human potential is not just tied to the particular service they do through their job, even though I think that should be very much tied to what their passion is and what they can contribute, but also how they are serving in terms of community, in terms of family life, in terms of their relationship with nature, and in terms of making meaning, making a meaningful life lived. And so what are the barriers that um, women of color face? One of the things that I think about a lot was that my mom got a master's degree and then due to factors, including, I think, just straight up race and gender discrimination, wasn't able to continue in her field of choice, which was journalism. And, you know, right now we're seeing a huge crush of women who feel that it's impossible to make the right choice in terms of working, finding childcare during a pandemic. Kamal, maybe you can elaborate a little bit on how some of the futures you're looking at might deal with what is this current crunch and make it obsolete. I think that this goes to speak to why we need to design an economic system that is investing in a metric of success and human potential unleashed rather than in, you know, just something like a GDP that is returning value to in terms of corporate or capitalistic terms. And I think that oftentimes those two things are seen as binary that, you know, a lot of people think that, oh, that's a giveaway or, or this is just kind of a welfare state idea. But what I'm What I think that we're missing is if designed right, it actually becomes a a shared prosperity in a way that we've not seen because we've never invested in people in this way. And I think women of color, you've seen the incredible potentials that have come out from, uh, you know, just I'm thinking about Stacey Abrams and and what's happening right now with, with Kamala Harris and just in the political realm. Imagine if those kinds of potentials are unleashed on a much wider scale than just the kind of outliers that we're seeing now. Sharon, I'm a big fan of reading research papers and pushing the limits of my understanding. And I I got into a phase of looking at behavioral economics and how human beings may not always want shared prosperity. There's some evidence that we want advantage over equality. How do you factor that into how you look at your shared futures? You know, there's a lot we don't know. And, And if we don't start to cultivate our instinct, you know, the innate multiple modalities of knowing that would take us to a very different place, which is transitioning from the compulsion to categorize. But what about things that are beyond that? So, you know, I believe there really is a different model that's based more on relational construct, understanding our relationship with, you know, living and non-living systems, once we start to discover our relationships with those things, I, I think it opens up you know, a very different kind of awakening. It's not shared prosperity versus competitive advantage. All of those things can be true at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to end actually with retirement because one of the 
little twist was, you know, the question again was, how would your day be different if you spend as much time on community, family, creativity, and wellness as you do on working? But one thing we got was a few people saying, well, I'm retired, so I don't have to spend my time working. Kamal, it raises the question of, does our society ask people to wait to choose what to do with their time until they are retired? And does there need to be a rebalancing there? I absolutely think so. We tend to miss a lot of value, even from the fact that someone can go from being at work uh, in a traditional sense of work that's something that earns you money to spending time in community and having a different relationship and then bringing that knowledge back into their work life. Like We miss a lot of even Mm -hmm. the ways in which those things uh, create value. And I think when it comes to retirement, if we identify work as, oh, I work myself to death until I get to a point where I can just relax the rest of my life versus a, a modality of from the beginning of my work life all the way through to the end of my life, I have a relationship of making meaning. I have a relationship of learning. I have a relationship with my community that's supported by this ecosystem of resource generation that work does. I, I think that's a, a really exciting um, prospect. And Sharon, I'm going to let you um, just give us any further thoughts on whether and how retirement comes up in the work of the guild. <laughs> I think we need to abolish that term altogether. You know, it, it's, it's so sort of incremental and everything is predefined and labeled for us. Mm-hmm. When life really should be just a continuous spectrum of beauty. Because I think the very question of, am I doing the right thing? Am I in the right place now? Is what really limits everybody's potential. Well, to our potential and to achieving it. Sharon, Kamal, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Farai. That was Sharon Chang and Kamal Sinclair of the Guild of Future Architects. Thank you so much for joining us on Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is presented and syndicated by KCRW, KPCC, and KQED. It's produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua Williams is executive producer. Paulina Velasco is senior producer. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Original music by Kojin Tashiro. Our producer is Priscilla Alabi. Michelle Baker and Emily Daly are assistant producers. Production assistants from Mark Betancourt, Michael Castaneda, Sarah McClure, and Virginia Laura. Funding for Our Body Politic is provided by Craig Newmark Philanthropies and by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, empowering world-changing work. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.